You younger Christians, remember it's the words, not the beat to the song that matter most. Early detection alerts, that's the title of this evening's consideration. Isaiah chapter 50 is where we are, if you have your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 50. What we have here is another layer of God's pre-announced anointed one, the Messiah, along with additional identifying features. This is the kind of prophecy that should have served as an early detection alert for everyone when Christ finally showed up. I mean, the phenomenal things that accompanied him, that drew attention to him, satisfying the prophecies, even after the cross. I mean, you you would, you you have to put yourself there and say, what would I have done? Would I have caught the message? Would I have been honest enough to admit what I was looking at? Acts chapter 2, after the church was born, Peter's preaching, and he says, him, speaking of Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. They knew what he was talking about. Some came in late to the kingdom. Some never did. It's the same story today. In Acts chapter 8, we find Philip, one of the evangelists, those that just were able to preach Christ and lead people to him, that gift of evangelism. We find him sent out to the desert in Judea, and there was an Ethiopian riding on a chariot reading scripture. And we read in Acts chapter 8, sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And we're told what he was reading. It continues in Isaiah chapter 8. And there in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Because you know a lot of people think just because they get high grades in school or whatever it is, that they just know the Bible also. Big mistake. It's not true of anybody. What causes a human being to know what the scripture is saying and to apply it is the Holy Spirit, dependent upon God. At no point do we say to God, I got it from here. Well, it continues, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him, honest enough to say, I don't know what I'm reading. I'm liking it for some strange reason, but I don't know what it's saying. The place in the scripture which he read was this, it says in in Acts chapter 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer, he is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. In other words, they killed him. Then the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you. Of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of another man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning in that in this scripture, preached Jesus to him. This is exciting because you come here to this chapter in Isaiah and you say, how do I know when we get to the messianic part, how do I know that Isaiah is not talking about himself? 
That question is just answered here by Philip. When the Ethiopian asked, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? The language is superlative. It just does not apply randomly to anyone. Not all of it. Bits and pieces, there may be some application, but not the package. That is reserved for Christ. Isaiah, earlier in his prophecies, before chapter 50, where we are this evening, he gave hints of opposition towards the ministry of Messiah. In the previous chapter, in verse 2, Isaiah 49, verse 2, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. Already indications of conflict. Those are weapons of war. This is the third round introducing this Messiah since chapter 40. He says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, what we didn't get to yet, I have made my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So the suffering is intensifying in the prophet's revelation. Then by the time we get to chapters 52 and 53, we are told not only about the intensity of his sufferings, but why it was necessary. Isaiah 52, verse 14, His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. When we get to that verse about the visage being marred, I'm going to probably irritate some of you who have emotional theology, but we'll have to wait till we get there. That kind of cliffhanger. But coming back to Isaiah, the necessity of Messiah's suffering, Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Paul really draws that out in 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 5. Reconciliation from God with sinners. Well, you would think with verses like this that talk about the coming of Messiah and his sufferings, that when Jesus did come and suffer, that all of Israel would have repented. Many did. Most did not. So now we look at this 50th chapter, the first three verses are about the rebellious heart of the people, and then we'll get back to Messiah. Verse 1, thus says Yahweh, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgression... Your mother has been put away. So this is a rhetorical question. It's a question that is not looking for an answer. The question is giving the answer. It indicates the absence of divorce. He's saying there is no divorce. Where's the certificate? Show me. Therefore, God is reassuring his people that he has not abandoned them, not permanently. He has withdrawn from time to time because of their iniquity. But he denies that he has broken off the covenant relationship that he has established with them as a people. And so Isaiah says, God speaking through him, don't blame God for this estrangement that you're 
talking about. Because they were saying in chapter 49 how God has abandoned them. Uh, Verse 14 of Isaiah 49, Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Yeah, well, there's more to the story. There's the truth to the story. This image of husband and and wife relationship, this unity uh, that God is using throughout Scripture as metaphor for his relationship with his people. Isaiah speaks about it. Jeremiah speaks about it. Hosea, Ezekiel, we get it in the New Testament. Yahweh is joined to Israel since Sinai, Mount Sinai, even before the prophecies, of course, but that's when the covenant was established in Exodus 19 and 20. They violated that covenant by playing the harlot and worshiping other gods, the idols. Jeremiah chapter 2 For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress, when on every high hill and under every tree you lay down playing the harlot. They were totally into idolatry. They were lying to God, lying to God's people, lying to God's prophets, just making up things about God, thinking they were getting away with it. God did not forsake his people though they were unfaithful to him. Again, Jeremiah chapter 3, Return, O backsliding children, says Yahweh, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Reaffirming his commitment that if there was any guilt of unfaithfulness, it was on the side of people, not God. And so what, what we're getting out of this, we're learning about the character of God Almighty into the New Testament. That's the purpose of quoting the scriptures. It's saying here, the God is telling us something about himself and his relationship to people. Second Corinthians, in the New Testament, Paul says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. So the work continued, and it does continue to this day. And Christianity, well, many Christians are just, you know, the Bible's just not enough for them. They think it has to be supplemented. And they attach to it all sorts of wacky things that don't come from Scripture, contradict and are contrary to the Bible. And when you point it out, you have confrontation. So, on account of their persistent backsliding, God put Israel away, the northern kingdom, Judah's sister. God had given the northern kingdom a bill of divorce. That was the non-Davidic kingdom. They were not a kingdom that received the promises as did David for Judah. And he disowned the northern kingdom. The Assyrians came, took all the people away, and that was it. And that kingdom is not coming back. Judah is in contrast to that. So the surviving Jews were wrong to suppose themselves cast off. Now, in the law concerning marriage, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses covered this for the Jewish people. He left a lot of questions, but he also gave some pretty clear answers to other areas concerning this topic, this very unpleasant topic. The certificate of divorce... When it was given, uh, the former marriage was broken and it could not be restored. And that woman was free to remarry. 
but she was not free to remarry the husband. If he, you know, if he went on to get married, come back, okay, let's try it again. And that's pretty much what happened with the northern kingdom. God divorced them. They were gone. They could not come back. But the Davidic kingdom remained. I don't know if you're following this. Some, you know, Wednesday nights are, go, goes a little deeper. Um, you know, a, a Christian really that's used to just milk might have a hard time with all of this. But a Christian who is learning to digest the meat of the word can keep up with it. Anyway, the northern kingdom... Uh, was assimilated into Assyria. But David's covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7 remains unconditional. And what I'm trying to point out to you is the Jews were crying that God had forsaken them, but God had baked into his word all sorts of illustration and, and parables and metaphor to assure them that if there was any guilt, it was on their side. And we as Christians should know about these kinds of things because God continues to illustrate, to give parables, to give straight, flat-out lessons, various ways. God trying to assure his people of his trustworthiness, which then we are supposed to engage the lost and ensure them that God's word is trustworthy, that there are sections in Scripture that have to be uh, talked about and wrestled with, but overall, we get the point. And uh, there's nothing wrong with with exp- digging deeper into Scripture if you're going to use it for the glory of God. May I be useful to God and a blessing to others. Uh, that's what I would like out of my life. And so, um, he is going to restore Judah. He says here in verse 1, Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Now, he's really mocking the mockers because God is saying, you know I can't owe. You know I'm not indebted to anyone. So why are you going around thinking that somehow I'm the guilty one, that I'm not fulfilling my end of the covenant, or that I owe you something? Uh, God has not sold his people but by their sins, they have sold themselves. I agree. You know, Pastor Chuck used to say he, he believed that God didn't send anybody to hell. He just supported their decision to go there, to be separated from him. And I agree with that. I mean, what does it take to go to hell? To, or to, to reject the gospel. Uh, that's what really, it's all it really takes. When we come up in Romans chapter 3, we'll talk about those who have not yet heard the gospel, and we'll discover that God is just in his decisions, and he doesn't cheat. He's not unfair. He is righteous. He is faithful to his word even when we are faithful. If you belong to God, 2 Timothy 2. Getting past this uh, Old Testament section, and then we're going to get to this Old Testament section about the New Testament in just a few moments. But the faithfulness of God. Second Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that look like? Well, maybe you've done something. You're having a hard time forgiving yourself. But God has forgiven you. He is faithful. Even if you're troubled and stumble and, you know, Lord, I'm sorry, but I just feel so bad. God will leave you to feel bad and work it out. But he's moving forward. He's going to be faithful. He is faithful to chasten those whom he loves. Uh, He will also judge whom 
those who were against him, but those whom he said to the church at Laodicea, the church that was characterized as one that nauseated God. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He's saying, you're messed up, Laodicea, but I, there's a door open. You can still fix this. You just need to repent. He is also faithful to forgive when we repent and confess. First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 2. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stink because there is no water, and die of thirst. So he says, why can't you just believe me? Why could he not find a believer amongst his people that would trust him? Especially after all the miracles he had performed in their history. There's an interesting section in Numbers. This is when Moses and the people were out of Egypt. They were a free people now, but they were in the wilderness, and they were leaving Mount Sinai where the law was given, and they were moving deeper into the wilderness on their way to the promised land before the spies were sent in. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who has called by three different names, probably titles and things like that in, in addition to a name, but Jethro, Ruel also, um, he was with them, and Moses wanted his father-in-law to stay with them. He, you know, you know the desert, you can be our eyes for us. As the Lord leads us, you can tell us what we can expect from, you know, the terrain and things like that. And uh, he says this to him, Moses speaking to his father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well. For Yahweh has promised good things to Israel. That's right. God laid out, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do that for you. I just have one thing I need you to do. Obey me. Don't go following fake gods. Don't, you know, just listen to the commandments I just gave to you. This is so profound. For the Lord Yahweh has promised good things to Israel. And yet here he is, centuries later, he cannot find one to respond to him because they're out serving other gods. That's why he can't find somebody who's going to respond to him. He's targeting the, the wicked. There's a righteous remnant here that Isaiah is not talking to. He's addressing the majority, uh, who certainly seems to be the majority of apostates in Jerusalem and Judah at this at the time he ministered, but it serves all ages. It continues in verse two. In my hand is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? So he challenges his people to prove their assertions that he's abandoning them, that he can't do any more for them, and yet he is faithful. Uh, but, uh, you know, Judah will go into exile. There will be that separation, and they, they will be restored. And the, the Jews have had their scriptures. They have them to this very day. What do they do with them? That is the question. What are they doing with their own scripture? Have they just boiled it down to ritual? 
to something that's sort of like a folk religion? Or is God real to them? Uh, well, he is real to the ones that um, come to their Messiah. But as we pointed out, uh, the, there's no way somebody can come along now and prove, be born in Bethlehem and prove the lineage of David and fulfill the criteria for Messiah. That, that window is closed. So many Jews have seen that and have become Christians in the modern age. The mention of the fish here goes back to the first plague in Exodus when the water was turned into blood and the, the same thing happened. The fish died and the river was unusable, Exodus 7. Now verse 3 of Isaiah 50, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their coverings. So God, God said, the, uh, <clears throat> let there be light. But he can also say, let there be darkness. He can turn the lights off. He is sovereign. This Incidentally, was the ninth plague out of Egypt, the plague of darkness, and the tenth one was, of course, the plague of death. So, Revelation 6 continues this thought there in Revelation 6. Now, in Revelation 6, the great tribulation period has started. So, in the first three chapters of Revelation, you have the church age, the age of grace, then the scene shifts to heaven, and then it comes back to earth when Antichrist comes on the scene riding a white horse. And uh, speaking about the, the great tribulation, John reveals, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And so God's still demonstrating that um, the same God who spoke in the days of Moses, in the days of Isaiah, in the days of John, will be the same God speaking in uh, the end of the age. Now verse 4 shifts. Now we're going to come to the soliloquy of Messiah. In verse 4, the Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear the learned. <laughs> well, the Messiah is saying, I'm going to be prepared when I get there. Uh, I will be made in heaven. Of, and to, to use that language, because, he, of course, Christ is self-existence from eternity past. He is the eternal Son. The source of his education, if we can put it in human terms, we might say, are found in John chapter 15. And in John 15, they were impressed with how much he knew about Scripture. But he didn't come through them. And they weren't going to stand for that. If we don't make you, then you can't be made. Uh, you cannot impress us unless we say we, you, you, know, you can impress us. This is still alive and well today. You know, the arrogance that goes with universities. Because so much good comes out of them. Every time you ride, drive over a bridge, for example, you know that there's an engineer that's university trained to make that happen. And we're very grateful about that. But then there's another element that goes with formal uh, higher learning that is just... Right out of hell. And if I saw a cartoon that said uh, a vendor, uh, no, no, how was it? It was a vending machine that said gullibility test. 
and you would insert, it said $1, gullibility test, and you insert the dollar, but there was no exit for anything. There's nothing came out. You just lost your dollar if you were gullible. Now, there are certain neighborhoods that if you had that machine, you'd go broke. If you put that in the hood, they know better. They're savvy enough to say, I ain't putting my dollar in there. No way. And you'd, you'd go broke. But if you wanted to be rich, you just put that machine on universities, on the campus of universities, because so many of those mushmine young students are so gullible that they can't tell you what a male or female is anymore. And this is just, this is, this is out of hell. This isn't human. It's not human to behave this way. It's demonic because it then leeches out into all sorts of areas until now they've got men dressing like girls, winning all the sporting events, and they're all scratching their head. Well, what do we do with this one? Anyhow, so in Christ's day, there were those that felt, well, you can't be smart unless we tell you. So John 15, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Well, who said he never studied? Because he didn't come to study from you? Is automatically, he's, he, he can't know anything? And it still goes on. There are people that say, well, what, what seminary did you go to? And if you tell them you were homeschooled by your father in heaven, they, they don't, yeah, we don't like that one. It's sad, but it's the way it is. Anyway, the Lord subjected himself to his processes of righteous development. He came as, a, as an infant, as a newborn, and he grew. And we'll talk about that as we go through this. But continuing in verse 4, he says, again, Messiah is talking about himself so that we could identify him, as Philip did with the Ethiopian, that I should know how to speak a word in season to the weary. Well, Christ was totally in touch with human need, and he still is. One of the problems is our carnality wants to be, uh, you know, relieved of the problem, rescued from the problem, and not just, uh, you know, built up in the midst of the problem. We want the whole problem to go away. But that's, that's not how it usually works. So he's not aloof. He's able to identify Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. <coughs> Excuse me. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's way above us. And then he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But you're still going to have to carry that burden. <laughs> I'll give you a little rest. I remember, you know, you go on force marches in the military. They just they, You walk from, you're supposed to walk as far west until west turns to east. Anyway, uh, so there would be a break. You know, you walk... 10 miles, okay, take a break. Well, you know you still had to get up and walk again. It's like, man, can't they? you got trucks. I've seen them. Use them. Anyway, with Christ, is a similar thing, right? Uh, he, he says, okay, you're going to take a little break, but you got to finish. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Well, that's what they charged him. How did he learn these things? And so he stood amongst the rabbis in Jerusalem at 12 years old. And we read in Luke chapter 2, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Well, Isaiah said this was going to happen. 
That's what we're reading about here in Isaiah 50, verse 4, that he has the ear of the learned. But it comes from the Lord. They were unaware that he was the carpent, a carpenter's son. Of course, Joseph wasn't his father, but he was under his, his care. And he was in the father uh, in the house of a carpenter. And, and by that definition, he was the carpenter's son. Uh, that's how society would have treated him. Verse 5, the Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. How many students become rebellious, when they, especially when they think they know Oh, they know more than the teacher. Though sometimes they may. Uh, but in contrast to the close-minded, resistant people of Isaiah's day, the Messiah is not going to be rebellious. Um, Isaiah 48, verse 8. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. So that characterized the people in Isaiah's day in contrast to a Messiah who has a teachable spirit before us. He doesn't even need to. He's sovereign, but he... he puts on humanity for our sake. He suffers for our sake. And he rises again for us. So uh, there are some that look at this verse and say, well, when it says he's opened my ear, some commentators say, well, that's the bondservant having his earlobe pierced when he becomes a willing servant. But I think that's a stretch. And you've got to watch that because there are parts of Scripture that are, have similarities, but that's not what's being spoken of. And uh, I don't believe that is the case. And just continuing back to verse 5. In other words, I don't think he's talking about putting the ear to be pierced to demonstrate he is a servant. It fits, but that, I don't think that's what Isaiah is talking about. And I'm not the only one. Uh, anyway, nor did I turn away, ever facing, ever facing the will of God, even Facing certain death, he did not turn away. Not my will, but your. We know that story. It should spook us a little bit when we feel like we are uh, entitled, that God owes us something. Again, I hit the prosperity teachers who just want to claim it and think that they're entitled now. Uh, that is not biblical. That's greed in the name of Christ. Um, you know what I can claim? I can claim Jesus is my Lord. That's what I can claim. And if he is my Lord, then it is his will that I must be subject to. And if um, uh, I know what his will is, then I'm to act on it. If I don't know, then I am to seek it. He tells me, ask, seek, knock. Uh, ask, and it will be given to you according to his purposes. Uh, you know, the British would say, I don't know about nowadays, but it was a time when the crown was everything to them. And they would say, according to the dictates of the king. Well, isn't Christ the king? Should I not, as a believer, outshine them in my service to my monarch, Jesus Christ? Everything from the time we open our eyes in the morning till the time we close them at night is supposed to be, our life is supposed to be subject to the dictates of the king. But we got this flesh that says, oh, yeah, we'll see about that. And that is the 
war we find ourselves in. And it's full, full out conflict. So Jesus, he spoke openly about his obedience to the Father when he walked the earth. Just a couple of places. Well, more than a couple. John 5.19, John 5.36, John 6.38, John 7.16, John 7.29, John 12.49.50. Why only am I reading from John? Because John is the one, his gospel is the one that was saying to the people when the, when the Gnostics were coming up and saying Christ was not, you know, the Son of God, and they were challenging his, the reality of his humanity and the reality of his sovereignty, John took that to task, and he wrote the Gospel of John to say he is every bit divine, and he is every bit real. And in his letters, they continue that, that, that he whom we have handled, we've touched, we've seen with our eyes. He's not a ghost or a phantom. He was real. And he talks about uh, God walking amongst us. He presents Christ as God the Son as a human being uh, with all power, but holding it uh, in check, restraining himself. And that's why I'm quoting John. And so we come now to verse 6. Again, Messiah giving us a heads up on what's coming. He is giving, uh, he is alerting us. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He wasn't claiming freedom. He was claiming obedience. John chapter 12 Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is why I'm here, to die for the sins of the guilty. Isaiah 53, 52, 53, I'm fulfilling these. Psalm 22, I am fulfilling these things. Just turn to the scriptures, you'll see it, which many refuse to do. Luke 22, verse 63 Now, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Why? What did he ever do to any of them? What could he have done to all of them? Uh, I gave my back to those who struck me. The, The beatings, the 40 lashes minus one. My cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. You know, anyway, it plucked out the beard in submission to the cross. He endured on behalf of us. Matthew 27, they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Later, Matthew would say they also struck him with their hands because he moved from one judgment, one court to another court before one judge, you know, there's Pilate, there's Annas, there's Caiaphas, and he was being abused all the time. Uh, the marring of his visage wasn't so much hum- his, his physical visage, it was who he was, the essence of who he is, the Son of God. How, how could he let this happen to him? Love for us. There are um, a lot of things that we know about God from the Bible, and there's a whole lot of things we don't know that we will know when we get to heaven. Well, spitting, of course, is a global sign of contempt and anger and hatred, disrespect. It's still practice. And so, I saw in, in China, 
communist-run China, and communism again, in case you have any confusion, communism is a religion that pretends to be a political entity. It acts as one from time to time, but it is a religion, and they won't tolerate other religions. Uh, so uh, there's, there's footage of these people in hating each other, spitting at each other, because if they fight, the laws aren't very tolerant, and they don't want to go to jail. So what's the next best thing? Well, uh, pool noodles would be one. You could use those without worrying about bludgeoning the other guy. But they go to spitting on each other. They have to, you can see the hatred on them. I'm just saying, it's, this has been around a long time. There's a lot of hatred for this Jesus of ours then, and there's a lot of hatred for him now. Uh, Hebrews 12, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't like it any more than anybody else. And yet he took it. Um, how many, you know, do you have a thin skin as a Christian? you like a hemophiliac if you get poked just a little bit, you bleed too much? I hope I'm not that way. I know my flesh is, and I hope my spirit just stays above these things. Here's an example of bitterness not getting past it. When I die, I'm leaving a list of people who I don't want to come to my funeral. I mean, that's just like, why? They don't want to give them the satisfaction. Uh, so, you know, things like that, got to watch out for. So that's why I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to die. I'm just going to stay around, spite them. Um, <laughs> anyway, coming back to this. I think Christians are the only ones that can actually say, when I die, if I die, because of that whole rapture thing. Anyhow, verse 7, for the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Yeah, by righteous standards, all that's true. The world has their standards, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. To confound the wise. What the world defines foolish, not God. God says, what I'm telling you is not foolish. But they're going to think it is. To the Greeks, foolishness. To the Jews, a stumbling block. But to God, it's spot on. And so, you know, we have to make sure we do not let Satan write our dictionaries and encyclopedias. Our, we are the learned of the Lord. And that's why he's given us a pretty thick book. Uh, this is like, you know, one page won't work for you. You're going to need a lot of them. Well, verse 7, uh, again, uh, that's where we are. Christ always chose to act as God the Son become flesh when he walked the earth. Not now. He's been glorified. He's returned largely to um, who he is, uh, if he were to absolutely return to the Father, we would sort of just be very confused. But it really helps that God has become closer to us. He is, in, through Christ, the incarnation brought Yahweh closer to us so we could learn so much more that we would not have had had he remained sort of, um, you know, removed in heaven. Uh, 
so that's why Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What a profound statement. Nobody could say that. No angel could say that without blaspheming. Well, again, he chose to act as God the Son become flesh, not in his inherent omnipotence, keeping himself under the guidance and control of the Holy Spirit voluntarily. That's what he's telling us in Isaiah. He said, when I come and I behave this way, you understand that I gave you an alert. I announced this. This is how I'm going to do it. To help you identify me and to help you know what's going on and, and learn some things about how you're to behave also. He is the second Adam, the last. Adam, Adam you know, failed to be the the obedient being he was created to be, but Christ is the, 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 the one that did not fail. He lived by faith, as we're called to, to live, and he did not use his divinity, um, but he defaulted to the Godhead. And so we read in John 8, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Living dependent upon the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 2. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth. This is after the incident in the Jerusalem temple when he was 12 years old. And was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. So Mary, when she's telling Luke, because Luke, he researched his book, the Gospel of Luke, and he tells us that right at the beginning. He looked deep into these things, interviewing people and talking to Mary. Mary said to him, look, there were so many things about Christ growing up that all you could do is just file it to memory. It was unlike anybody and anything. And he was not making pigeons out of mud pies or something like that, like some of the crazy heresies teach. But he was just this stellar person. And she hit, what could she do? She couldn't explain it. I mean, they're pretty upset they get back to Jerusalem after three days. Maybe you've had a child that has gone missing from you, and you know, you're, you're, you're agonizing. And when you see them, you're, you're like, you want to take your belt off. You don't. Hopefully you, you don't. But you're like, where were you? Why, why would you do that to me? Am I the only one that's ever had these kind of feelings? I said, I couldn't get to a phone, Dad. I was trying to. Oh, okay. So anyhow, uh, so Mary and Joseph, you know, they were, they were pretty upset. And so he submits to them. And Luke puts that in his writing. He teaches us about Christ. And it, it continues. He says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he submitted himself to the development processes that we go through. He grew in stature and wisdom, dependent on the Holy Spirit. At any time, he could have stopped that. That's one of the things when he says, I can call 12 legions down right now. But he subjected himself to these things under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to teach us uh, how we are to conduct ourselves. Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What's the first thing Christ points out with anointing? Preaching. Telling the truth about God, based on revelation from God. He doesn't see, say, he has anointed me to do interpretive dance. They had something like that in Judges, remember? The women came out with their dancing, and the men clobbered them and took them as wives. 
goof, one of the goofiest stories in the Bible. So, anyway. And now some of you may say, but I like interpretive dance. Well, you shouldn't. <laughs> not in church. And who's, what, if, what do you have when you have dueling interpretations? Oh, no, that's not right. I disagree with that. How do you settle that? A dance-off. Which is even more irritating. <laughs> then you have river dance comes in. <laughs> okay. Use your arms. Anyhow. That's how I cheer at a soccer match. Anyway, back to this. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the ones that are ready to receive because they know they don't have anything before God. Without him, they're broke paupers. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You know, you, you can be, you can follow the letter of the law. You'll just won't, you'll be useless to God, pretty much. I'll give you an example of that. John chapter 8. She was caught in adultery. They said, kill her. That's what the law demanded. You see, that's how useful those guys were to God. Where was the man, by the way? They knew where he was, but they wanted to break the law. What did Christ do? He looked for a solution in the situation. Go and sin no more. He didn't wink at sin. He said, you know, it's not that, sometimes it's more complicated than the letter of the law. There is this such thing as where sin abounded. Grace did much more. And you just saw it in John chapter 8 with that woman. And so he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery to the sight of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. At his first coming, Christ came in the spirit of grace. He stops quoting Isaiah right there because Isaiah then goes on to talk about the vengeance of the Lord. But he doesn't quote that section in application to himself because he came as the Lamb of God and not the Lion of Judah, which he will come as uh, next time. Anyway, uh, talking about the development of Messiah as announced uh, over 700 years before his birth, Luke chapter 9, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Well, what does that have to do with this? Well, look again at verse 7. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He steadfastly set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies. That's pork. I can't have it. Uh, Paul determined to know nothing amongst the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Man, the simplicity of the gospel. It does not need our embellishment. We don't have to create clever ways to get people to receive Christ. We have to go along with the revealed way. It's good enough. And if they don't receive Christ, it's not because the scripture lacks. It's because they don't want him. Yet, don't forget that. It's, you know, as long as there's life, there's time. Well, Paul determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Jesus set his face like a flint and walked straight to the cross. And we are so grateful for that. That's why we can sing to him, because he's alive. He's not only alive on paper, he is alive. Where two or more gathered in my name, there he is in the midst. I believe that. Not only do I believe that, I like that. Verse 8. He is near who justifies me. 
who will, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Your court is nauseating. When you drive by a courthouse, that is a battlefield, as a place of conflict. There's no healing there. And justice is slim. Sometimes you can get justice. It's like a, the one-armed bandit. It's a slot machine. It's, you might get justice. Jesus said, you know, try to settle this thing out of court. Because you can't trust the courts. Uh, it's sad to say it. Not all, every I mean, sometimes there is justice. But would any of you like to go to court and have your freedom or your possessions put on the line? Anyway, uh, he, here he's talking about, let, let's put me on trial. By the resurrection of Christ, he was acquitted. Because what was the charge on Christ? Blasphemy. And that he rose again just proved that he was not condemned by God. So God proclaimed, Hebrews chapter 7, that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That part harmless, that's for his people. Anyone will come with him. We'll close with a judgment verse because we can never lose sight of that. Who is my adversary? Well, they came near enough to kill him and that's what they did. They crucified him. Incidentally, when the Romans crucified people, they didn't crucify them up on the Cecil B. DeMille crosses. They, for those of you who don't know, he was a director of movies like... Um, um, I forgot. Jesus of Nazareth, one of those movies. I don't remember. Greatest story ever told, I think, might have been. Anyway, uh, when they crucified a person, number one, they wanted to save lumber. That wasn't their priority. You know, how many, how many of the Spartacus Rebellion slaves did they kill? No, they littered the Appian Way, thousands of them they crucified. But they crucified a person at eye level. They wanted you to look at his face. They wanted you to see his agony. He was a poster boy for Rome's law. And if you violated Rome, and you, you would get crucified. And so they would, and that's traumatic to see a human being. It's hard to see an animal suffer, but a human being to suffer like that. So when Christ was, was crucified, is that eye level. They wanted you to see him. When they crucified the Jews after conquering Jerusalem and one of the revolts, they ran out of wood. They were crucifying so many of them. So, when we talk about these, the suffering of Christ, as this verse, and he, he, you know, he talks about who is my adversary. Well, those adversaries crucified him. Peter said, who committed no sin, 1 Peter 2. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. What kind of people are these that killed him? Verse 9. Surely Yahweh, surely the Lord Yahweh will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Well, it's just a consequence of, of being on the wrong side of God. Incidentally, he doesn't say, I will grow old, because he did not grow old. No one could declare his generation. He was cut off. They, they, they killed him. But he says they're going to grow old. So God's definitions bypass oftentimes our immediate definition. It's a paradox. Something that appears to contradict but actually does not. So when Paul says to Timothy, you have seen me in persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium, at Lystra, 
what persecutions I endured. Can you catch that? When Paul's writing this and he sort of inserts this emotional, what persecutions I suffered. And then he goes on, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. I think about this verse when I have my pity parties, which are usually not attended, I've noticed. It's just no surprise, we're here with you. But I have my pity parties too. They're between me and the Lord. And it's always the same. You know, I, it's some scripture verse comes to mind. It's, you know, Jeremiah being pulled out of the miry pit by, uh, you know, an African slave. Or just, you know, whatever it is. Paul here, out of the mall, the Lord delivered me. And I get stronger with that. I know what my duty is. And I get up and go do it. And I just, you know, take my hits looking for a better day as a faithful creator awaits me. And, uh, and, and boy, thank God, as Paul said, and all those who have loved his appearing. He doesn't say, boy, I can't wait to get to heaven. Too bad for you. What would, what would salvation be like if he only saved you? Well, you'd be grateful maybe, but doesn't that create other thoughts that are positive towards other people? God, can I be useful to you and a blessing to others? Uh, when I go make a pastoral call, Lord, can I just be a blessing? You know how hard it is to be a blessing sometimes? It's just not, some, you know, sometimes people don't make it easy. Sometimes you're just in a foul mood. You don't always have to understand why you're down in the dumps. David said, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you cast down? Yeah, because of creepy curses on, on this world. And then you'll work out of it. Just keep working. Verse 10 who among you fears Yahweh, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely upon his God. So those who fear the Lord are to come to the light. They're invited to trust. Fear is to revere. It's a holy reverence to a pure God. To obey is to heed. It's not, obedience is not a philosophy. A lot of Christians think it's just, it's just a good idea. It, it is a fact, a concrete fact. Who, who walks? To walk is to, to, to live. And, and finally he says to trust. And that is faith in action. Who walks in darkness and has no light. That's moral and spiritual darkness. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Well, continues verse 11. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. That's a pretty heavy way to end a chapter about the coming of Messiah. But God says, look, I'm not playing. What makes you think I'm joking? What makes you think there's something funny about my son dying on a cross? Um, there's nothing funny about it. You can make light, but be not deceived. God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he shall reap. Those who walk in the light of the fire they have kindled are condemned to sorrow. That's what he's saying. There's created light, then there's the creator's light. All of it, in the literal sense, is his. But we're talking about metaphorically, man's understanding. Then the light's turned on. Well, what do we mean by that? I mean, we finally understood something. 
The light that man generates without God is useless light. It is useless. It is useless against the curse of sin. Comparatively, man's light is like just sparks to God. Compared to his supernova light, his light of morality, intellectual, understanding, spiritual things. God makes level playing fields. There's a Christian... Well, Stephen Hawking's, you know, was touted to be such an intelligent, um, you know, a physicist, I think was his primary, whatever it was. Uh, there's another Christian who was just as intelligent as him in the same world, challenged Hawkins to a debate which Stephen Hawkins would not take. And uh, the Christian, who I'm purposely not naming, he, he wrote a book, and it's more evangelical, and he used Daniel as, you know, the, the main character. And, you know, reading the book, I'm saying to myself, this man is a hundred times more intelligent than I am, except when it comes to Scripture. That's the equal playing field. Because there's such a thing as anointing. And I found the book actually kind of boring. Because I, you know, not it's not pride. It's just a fact. I mean... I, I get paid to immerse myself in Scripture. If you get paid to immerse yourself in something and you applied yourself, you're going to be pretty good at it. You're going to be better usually than the people who aren't doing that. It's just a law of life. What would you do to a guy that's always in the gym practicing, you know, punching and kicking and wrestling? Who wants to fight that guy? Uh, well, somebody else has been in the gym doing the same thing. You're going to have advantage. Well, uh, there are many books that are written by people who are more intelligent, but not necessarily more anointed. This level playing field keeps us humble. And it does not allow anyone to boast. And we see people that, you know, uh, are in high places and they get saved. And they feel like they got to write a book now. Now somehow they're an authority. That's not how it works. One... Exhibit one, Peter, the fisherman. I mean, Peter was a mess as far as, you know, by the world standards. But he lived with God three years. I met Men write volumes about Peter and his two little letters and his life. So we talk about light. We talk about intelligence. Well, God's intelligence has this additive anointing it changes everything and it is not um, go to a church where the pastor is not anointed you won't be able to wait to get out of that church he's just repeating things saying things, but there's just no anointing and it's not hard to find pastors who are anointed they love the lord they love the lord's people they understand their calling there's things about their calling that they're honest enough to say they do not like but they're also scared enough to say, I can't leave it. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, you know, when you see a parent say, I, I'm not leaving my child. I'm going to stay here and I'll die for my child. We applaud that. Well, you better have a pastor that is the same kind of approach to ministry. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want Jesus to say to me, are you two going to leave? Oh, man. Well, I'm summing this up. 
Some feel no need for what they cannot control, and that's why they want to make their own fires. That's what Isaiah is talking about. They want to make their own fires. They don't want to receive light from God. They won't acknowledge Him as God. Or they'll demote Him and say, well, there are other gods too. There are other ways also. When Paul gets in Romans to talking about those who have not heard the gospel, at no point does he say, well, their other gods are valid. At no point does he do anything like that. Because they're, they're not. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses? Well, let's read it. Because this, I was going to quote Matthew, but Mark, uh, Luke, I think, presents it a little differently. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? End quote. What good is it? Starting your own little campfires of knowledge that end up damning you forever. Walk in the light of your fire and the sparks you have kindled, God said. Go ahead, try that. See how far you get in eternity with that. Almost done. Three verses. John, 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so Isaiah finishes this line. He says, this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So here's a call to the unconverted to get their act together. Two verses. Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then Ephesians 5, 8, two verses later. For you once, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Well, by God's help, we'll be doing a lot better with him than we were without him. Let's pray. Our Father, more information, more challenges. The Spirit says... <laughs> Bring them on, Lord, because you know best. The carnal man, the natural man, always resists you. And we are aware of these things. And may you find us always uh, looking to submit to you. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>